The insurance industry is the backbone of the economy. It's the reason we're able to take risks, and it's the force that helps put us all back together when disaster strikes. So in this podcast series, I'm spending some quality time with key CEOs to ask them how certain world events can impact the insurance industry and how the insurance industry is impacting the world. We'll also be talking about how they rose to the C-suite. It seems like no one grows up yearning for an insurance career, but here we are. I'm Meg Green, Managing Editor of the online insurance magazine, Insider Engage, and this is the CEO Perspectives. The excess and surplus lines market, also known as ENS, is a specialty market that ensures things standard carriers won't cover. These are difficult or high-risk exposures that have had frequent or large claims in the past. In other words, ENS takes care of the problem children. These can range from medical liability to multinational oil companies. It can also cover properties that have experienced losses from environmental catastrophes. Take the state of Louisiana, for example. In Louisiana, a hurricane is expected every two to three years, and 800,000 homes are considered at risk. Traditional insurers wouldn't want to pay for their hurricane claims every two years, so that's where ENS can come in. The ongoing pandemic and challenging economic environment may have stifled growth in the overall P&C industry, but the small and mighty ENS market has continued to see double-digit growth in the last three years. To better understand the transformation of this market, I felt I should revisit a building in Virginia where I first came 20 years ago. I'm currently outside Markell campus in Glen Allen, Virginia, just north of Richmond, Virginia. Markell is a holding company for insurance, reinsurance, and investment operations around the world. I'm here to talk to Richie Witt, co-CEO of Markell Corp. The campus is lush with green trees. Uh, buildings are shiny glass, remarkably quiet for um, a building this big with this many people coming in and out. I was last here 20 years ago when I visited the company to learn about the excess and surplus lines market. At that point, I spoke to three people in charge of the company, all related to the name Markel. Tony and Steve Markel are cousins, and Alan Kushner, who married a Markel. At the time I spoke 20 years ago to the Markels, they said, they wanted the next generation of leaders to be influenced by the Markel culture, but not necessarily have the Markel DNA. And that's what's happened with the current management. Hello, how are you? Good, good, good. Good morning. Hi, Bob. Just a security pass for you. Okay. Uh, enjoy your visit. And, thank you. Uh, if you need anything, let me know. Oops, and, thank uh, you. Turn in when you're done. You are all ready? I'm all set. Awesome. We'll take you up. So, Richie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you guys for coming down. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's nice to be seen, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> coming out of the pandemic. Coming out of two plus years of COVID. So yeah, I was here 20 years ago. Right. And the campus looks very much the same. Am I missing anything? Has anything changed? No, you know, we're still in the same three buildings here, uh, right beside the lake. Uh, so yeah, the physical location is the same, but uh, in 20 years, Markel has changed a lot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more in detail about the company of Markel later in the episode. But for now, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First, probably you ought to say I'm from here in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, went to uh, went to the mountains of Virginia for for college, Blacksburg, Virginia, uh, Virginia Tech, 
and um, came back to Richmond after school as uh, an accountant with uh, KPMG. So uh, started out as an accountant. And then uh, one of my very first clients was Markel. And I, I tell you what, my favorite client, and this is, this is not a kidding, my favorite client was Markel. They were just really nice people. They enjoyed what they were doing. They were nice to the auditors, which that's not always the case when if you're an accountant and you're out in people's offices auditing, they're not always terrific to you, put you in the closet or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but Markel was just a great place to be. And uh, so I worked for KPMG about five years, and then the opportunity came to join Markel, and I jumped at it. Um, and have been here 31 years since. Did you know anything about insurance? No. Uh, when I, uh, I think I got into insurance, there's two ways people used to get into insurance in my estimation, by accident or you had a family member in insurance. And I got into it by accident, you know, just found out about it from, from them being one of my clients. And uh, boy, it was, a, it was a great accident for me. Can I ask you what your parents did? Uh, my dad was a mechanic and uh, my mom was a nurse assistant. And are you pretty handy uh, like your dad? As a um, I, I wish I was as handy as my dad. Uh, he, did, he did teach me uh, a bit about, uh, you know, mechanical and I'm a car guy. So I have, uh, I have a number of cars and uh, the older ones I can work on, you know, things before about, let's say, mid 80s. I can tend to work on those cars. But after that, you get to the computers and all the incredible technology that are on cars now. I I, I have no idea how to work on those. Can you relate at all what it's like to working on a car to running a company like Markel? Huh. I tell you what, working on a car to, to running Markel. I've always said this in my career. Early in your career, you know, it's your your job is very task oriented. And you come in at the beginning of the day, and by the end of the day, you can kind of see what you've accomplished. And that's what I like about doing things mechanical. You come in at the beginning of the day, you take a part off, you put a part on, you see if the car runs, you do those sorts of things. So it's it, you get feedback as to were you successful or not during the day. I've always told people as, as you go up in your career, your, your job becomes, I guess, a bit more cerebral. And... I get to the end of the day sometimes I'm like, did I accomplish anything? And 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 you did, but but you don't have necessarily tangible results to look at. And sometimes the things you're doing in a day, you don't know how that's going to play out for months if not years. What is it about the insurance industry that you like? I, the people. The people. Uh, I think uh, I think it's a hidden gem. Uh, it's been well talked about in our industry. We don't do a great job just telling society, you know, the value we add and, and what a great career it can be. I think that's starting to change. I think more and more kids are coming out of college understanding what a wonderful career you can have in insurance. But I, I think of it as almost a fraternity. You meet up, you have competitors certainly, but uh, you tend to be friendly with your competitors. You compete when you need to compete, but you can go out and have a beer together or see each other at a, at a conference and be good friends. A lot of my really close, good friends are, are people I've met in the industry. 
a lot of people have been at Markel for a long time. Why do you think that is? Yes, I, I think it, um, it, like I said, kind of the reason I joined Markel, it was a place I could, I immediately saw people enjoyed what they did. They enjoyed being there with each other. It felt, felt almost family-like, right? And, and I think uh, the, a lot of that, the, the, the credit for that should go to Tony and Steve Markell and Alan Kirshner, who I, I believe are the, the founders of the modern Markell, certainly over the last 50 years or so. And the Markell style, you know, the values that, that they laid out for the organization. Basically, treat people as you would like to be treated. Try to create win-win-win outcomes, wins for our employees, wins for our customers, wins for our shareholders, our communities. As an organization, your roots are really in the ENS space. And I, I guess maybe I should back up and give our listeners some context. Like I said in the introduction, uh, ENS is excess and surplus lines. Uh, it's an area of uh, kind of... Uh, what I would call the problem children of the business, right? It's it's hard to write policies uh, where there have been actually a history of often a history of losses, or it's some kind of new business. Yeah. So ENS can be very creative because they they're the first to come in and write coverage for a new risk and emerging risk. Right. Right. So when things are working really well, I guess you use managing general agents and managing general underwriters who write the business. And when things work really well, these guys are experts in what they do. And they do a great job bringing this business to the carriers. When it doesn't work so well, (laughs) (laughs) they can produce unprofitable business. Um, So there's been just an explosion in the last couple of years of new MGAs and MGUs. I'm hoping to get your take on what what is going on, what is driving that business. Um, well, it's a, it's a good market, right? I guess you, you, you know, start, start up at the macro level. I think a a big part of the reason is we have a really good insurance market right now. And it's the first time we've had a market this good in probably 15 plus years. So that, that certainly would be one of the factors. I have to say, I struggled to, I struggled to see whether, uh, the, the world, the industry needs, this many MGAs and MGUs. And you sort of touched on it. There's good reasons for MGAs and MGUs to exist. Expertise, bring expertise, lower cost access to business. There's lots of good reasons, but even good ideas can be taken too far. And I do wonder if there's, uh, if things have gone a little too far at this point. You always have to remember with an MGA or an MGU relationship, you're, you're giving the pen, you're, you're delegating authority, and um, you got to make sure you monitor that. And you got to make sure uh, there's alignment of interest, uh, because otherwise you sometimes end up with, it, as you were saying, some, some terrible results. And uh, I, I can think back in my career at Markel, some of the worst underwriting results we have had is in instances where we gave away the pin, didn't have the proper controls around that delegation, and didn't have the, the, the proper incentives in place to keep us aligned with the MGA or MGU. So you have to be really careful. So I, I look at the number of MGAs and MGUs that have been established right now, and I, I am scratching my head a bit and just saying, has this gone a little too far? Has the pendulum swung too far? And when you start to see the market change, uh, you know, uh, not all MGAs and MGUs are, are created equal. 
some are better than others. And some of those that maybe don't have the proper alignment or the proper underwriting controls, you may see those go away. So when we talked earlier about um, the joy of being a mechanic and you could see the results at the end of the day, I mean, insurance is a tricky industry because you're writing business and you don't know the actual cost right. for sometimes years. Is that a concern? It's with- a, that is, I think, if it's not the toughest part of our business, it's got to be in the top two or three. We don't know our cost of goods sold. And and particularly at Markel, we tend to focus more on your casualty and professional and workers' comp lines of business. And so claims can take many years uh, to to develop and, and get to a final answer. And so it, 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 is, it is a tough one. And the way we have always approached it is to try to be incredibly conservative in terms of our underwriting, be good underwriters. And then be incredibly conservative in terms of how we think about reserving for that business. Uh, because, you know, the last thing you want is surprises four or five years after you've written on a you know, certain you know, professional liability line of business. Uh, you may not find out for five years, and that's a bad surprise if it goes, if it goes wrong. And the problem is you've been writing it for another four years since. So... Um, very, very difficult. It's hard to think of another industry that, that has that complication to it. What emerging risks are you seeing coming out of this market? Oh, well, clearly uh, the one that's been at the forefront recently is cyber. I would say uh, it's not an emerging risk. It's been there forever, but there's renewed focus on it is catastrophe with, with climate change. Um, there's a renewed focus there, and there has been tremendous amount of capacity that has stepped away, concerned that they can't uh, estimate what the appropriate, you know, loss load is and then come up with the appropriate premium. So that, that it's been a very interesting part of the market. Um, you know, that, that's, that's the great thing about our business. You know, it, it's not monolithic. You know, there's, uh, we, we write something in excess of a hundred different lines of business at Markel, things like cyber, some catastrophe business. And all those lines of business are, are moving slightly differently, have different or in different places in terms of their competitive cycle. And, and that, that is something that's really interesting about the, the insurance business. Do you expect to see the continued growth of MGAs and MGUs going forward? Um, I, I think it will be cyclical, just like the market is. Uh, when the market starts to soften, when results maybe um, aren't as good, you know, capacity may start pulling back. Is there a particular line you would have your eye on as maybe causing the cycle to change? I think given everyone's concern around, you know, both CPI inflation and social inflation, it's going to be your professional liability lines, probably the most exposed to concerns around that, and then your casualty lines. Everybody is, I think, to some extent holding their breath to, to see how bad is the inflationary environment, because it won't show up entirely for a few years. And are the rates, you know, we're, we've been achieving some nice rate increases. Are we keeping those rate increases ahead of that claims trend? That's where it's going to show up first. 
Are you concerned at all about uh, a cyber catastrophe? Maybe uh, I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Particularly with the the war in Ukraine and the tensions in uh, you know Taiwan and China, there is systemic risk there. That that's always the thing that you know insurance is uh, based on the law of large numbers and and random outcomes. And systemic risk is is something that insurance does not deal well, well with. COVID-19 was an example that, you know, systemic risk of a pandemic. Insurance has a hard time coping with that. Uh, cyber, particularly the way the, the web has developed and providers of Internet services consolidating. There is you know, great concern, as it should be, around the potential for systemic uh, a systemic event. So we are a big writer of, of cyber. It's something that our clients need and, and we want to be able to provide it. But we have to recognize, given our, given our balance sheet, how much can we write, you know, how much risk can we take and, and being prudent about that. Are there other systemic events on the front of your mind? I mean, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Um, we haven't had inflation like we have today in 40 plus years. I was in high school the last time we had inflation like this. So the reality is very few of us know how to operate in an inflationary environment. I mean, there's always, hey, we've, we've been doing this for, I've been doing this for almost 40 years and there's always issues, Right. I think I think this is a there's tremendous opportunity in the market right now. Are there issues? Are there concerns? Yes, and there always will be. So, no, I, I don't lose much sleep, but there are certainly things that we stay very focused on. In your in your tenure, have you seen a shift? I mean, it seems like reinsurers today don't want to really be considered property catastrophe reinsurers anymore. Volatility is very out of favor right now. And that, that's not just an insurance. That, that goes to the, uh, the equity markets as well. Um, volatility is very, very out of favor at the moment. And so you've seen a number of reinsurers reduce their catastrophe appetite, uh, including Markel. We reduced our catas- catastrophe appetite on our balance sheet. We were fortunate to have our ILS operations, Nafila, and we we're able to transfer a, a decent amount of that portfolio over to Nafila to manage. But yes, I mean, volatility, uh, you're getting paid to take volatility again. It is, it is a true hard market today in that cat, particularly places like Florida. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, that would appear that that's going to be the case for a while until people feel like they can get a handle on what the effects of climate change are, what the effects of social inflation and as well as CPI inflation are, probably going to have capacity moving towards the doors for a while, which means the people who who uh, have the stomach for it and, and feel like they can price it appropriately, there's an opportunity there. Do you see more movement towards the capital market? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know ILS is you know, it's been a tough five years for anyone who's written that cat exposure, um, just given the, the string of events that have occurred. But when you think about it, natural catastrophe exposure, it really needs to be spread further into the, the broader financial markets. The, the insurance industry 
a trillion or so in capital, which is it's a speck compared to the overall financial markets. And the volatility that we're talking about, uh, it, it could be attractive to uh, investors, but it needs to be spread further into the market. So uh, despite these, you know, the issues that have happened in ILS over the last five years, I, I, my, my long-term view of the opportunity is that it's still, it's still big. Uh, because I, I just think that's where that risk belongs, ultimately, is further diversified into the financial markets. So, Richie, if there is anything you could change about the industry, what would it be? I think we need to do a better job as an industry explaining um, and, and promoting what we do for society. I mean, we nothing uh, in terms of commerce happens without insurance. We've been referred to as sort of the oil that makes commerce run or that makes business run. And it's so true. Uh, things do not happen unless insurance is available. And we also pay billions and billions each year to help people and companies uh, and entities recover after unforeseen incidents. And for whatever reason, we're not viewed in the highest light, you know, uh, when, when you look at NPS scores or just people's impressions of our industry, it's, it's not great. And that's hard to believe when you, you look at how much good we do. Do you think it has anything to do with most people think of insurance as their own policies, which are sure. really complicated, very dry, very boring, right? They it doesn't help, right? And there's been lots of discussions around how could you make it more user friendly, and I and I do think that you know that that's a lot of what the insure techs have been trying to do, trying to make insurance more user friendly, more accessible. I didn't mention you're retiring in March after 31 years. What is next for Richie Witt as you look off as you ride out into the sunset? Yeah, what's next? Well, cars. And I'm gonna <laughs> you know one of the things I really want to do is. Uh, Spend more time with the cars. I've got lots of projects there I want to uh, tackle. I'm in the process of working on building a garage at my home to house more cars. I feel like after almost 40 years, it's time to do some different things. And um, a, a friend of mine talks about the three T's, your time, your talents, and your treasures, you know, in terms of how you get involved in your communities. I've always tried to be involved in terms of my treasures. I think just with the rigor of the career and, and the things I've, you know, the job, I haven't been as uh, successful uh, using my time and, and my talents. So I, I've got some things I want to do maybe in terms of, uh, you know, charities and so forth to, to try to do a little bit better job in terms of time and talent. You know, I think it's so much more rewarding when you can spend your time and really get involved in a, in a cause. And I, I haven't really felt like I've had the ability to do that. You know, the job's pretty demanding. So hopefully you'll have a little more time for that uh, once I retire. That sounds great, Richie. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Meg. It's great to see you. Great and to see uh, you. nice to have you down in Richmond, yeah, great even though it's here. hot. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> In this episode, I've learned about the important role that ENS business plays in protecting people and property, and why some insurers may want to be careful about who they give their pen to. 
I also learned about expectations for growth in the ILS market as traditional insurers uh, continue to struggle with large losses. I'd like to thank Richie Witt and the entire Markel team for hosting us. To my amazing producer, Lindsay Riley from Earshot Strategies for making us sound so good. From my insider engaged team, Celine Frost and Kareem McGarrow for helping to get the CEO Perspectives podcast off the ground. And a special thanks to Goran Pancic for introducing me to Richie and for being the co-pilot on our epic road trip to Richmond, Virginia. For Insider Engage, I'm Meg Green.